the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Yes, indeed, and a good morning to you. No, not yet, not yet, not yet. I don't like autoplay. Boy, when you open up a page and auto, audio, audio, automatically audio starts playing or video starts playing, that's very, very frustrating. No, I didn't push play, so stop playing. Welcome! It is 10 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock on this Tuesday morning. It is the 18th morning of the fourth month of the year of our Lord, 2023, and we've got a very, very important show for you this morning. Peter Kersenow is not with us today. Pete's got a conflict, a schedule conflict. He is going to uh, be joining us tomorrow at 10.10. So joining me this morning... In about a half an hour, we're going to be talking with um, Mary Harrington. And uh, Mary Harrington has got a story to tell. It, it, it might not necessarily be the best timing in the world because we're going to talk about Jalen Walker and what happened last night, or yesterday, rather, in Akron. Uh, but coming up at 9.35, we do have a scheduled conversation about uh, feminine issues, about trans issues, and about, well, her book, Feminism Against Progress. She is a former lesbian who has uh, decided that the world of, of, well, that world 
And the world that she had created for herself was essentially broken and unfulfilling compared to her current role as a wife and a mother and an advocate for real women's rights. She speaks out on transgender issues and feminism issues and more, and we're going to talk to her coming up at 935 about this ongoing, especially in light of the Biden administration's recent statement, in fact, yesterday, uh, in their opposition to a uh, to a bill that would be put forth by the, by the uh, Republican-controlled Congress, Republican-controlled House, to be more precise, um, that would level the playing field and make sure that boys play on boys' teams and girls play on girls' teams. So uh, we're going to talk to her about all of the above coming up at 935. And then at 1110, Josh Hammer is going to join us again from Newsweek. And Josh Hammer's got a number of things we're going to get into as well. There's no point in, uh, in uh, previewing those now because we have a lot of work to do on the Jalen Walker case. So what I want to do is get started with uh, what happened yesterday in Akron and the decision that was made by a grand jury. And I don't want to interrupt that. So let's start with our pledge of allegiance. Patriots, go and stand and face your flag. Put your hand on your heart and join us. If you are so inclined, if you are driving, uh, don't worry about the stand part. It's really, really hard to do. I've tried it. Uh, just put your hand on your heart and join us for this pledge. If you believe that people ought to be able to take, uh, take shots at police officers and not be shot in return, then you really are really a lost soul and you have no earthly interest whatsoever in the stars and stripes and the great, wonderful republic that it represents. You may, instead of standing, you may take a knee next to your favorite unemployed quarterback where you're more comfortable. As for the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So we're going to dive right into this because it needs to be dived right into. Now, uh, I will play for you what I wanted to play, uh, excuse me, uh, but on my terms, not when the computer decides it's going to play. This is um, Channel 3, WKYC, and their report yesterday on the decision by the um, grand jury, uh, which was considering charges against eight Akron police officers in the summer 2022 shooting of Jalen Walker. Uh, this is not just their report. This is their coverage of the press conference that was held by the family and the legal representation of Jalen Walker's family um, uh, in this case. So it's about two and a half minutes long. I want you to listen. There's a reason I'm playing it, and you'll, you'll understand in just a moment. Jalen Walker's hearts have been destroyed. His body has been destroyed and our faith in this community, its leadership has been destroyed. Meanwhile, Walker's family and attorneys expressing shock and disappointment over the decision. Lydia Aspara is in Akron with more on what they are calling complete heartbreak. We are fans. Inside the church, Ashwood Temple on Odom Avenue, Jalen Walker's family, surrounded by friends and their attorneys. Attorney Bobby Ticello not expecting the grand jury's decision not to indict the officers who shot and killed the 25-year-old. I had a conversation with the two prosecutors from the Attorney General's office. I was told that in their estimation they had a 51% to 50-some percent, greater than 50% chance that someone was going to get indicted. I was told that. As protesters yelled out justice for Jalen, Walker's family, who has been gracious throughout the entire proceedings, have been asking for peaceful protest. 
Will they be a part of the protests expanded all around the city? We're letting them go through this in the way they want to, and, and we'll cross each of those bridges as they come. Congresswoman Amelia Sykes will be asking the Department of Justice to investigate the Akron Police Department. But I do hope that they are listening to the voices of Ms. Walker, to the voices of this community, and take it upon themselves to find uh, the will to investigate what happened not only with Mr. Walker, with Jalen, but the patterns and the practices of the Akron police that would allow for officers to feel like they could shoot 90 rounds, hitting a young man 46 times. The eight police officers who shot Walker, seven whites and one black, were cleared of all wrongdoing. This is not a decision the family nor these protesters accept. While Jalen Walker's family was not expecting this outcome, attorneys are guaranteeing this. They will file a civil lawsuit against the Akron Police Department immediately. Of course they will. Of course they will. Because there's two goals for the attorneys representing this family, and they're the same two goals for the attorneys representing other families in similar circumstances. And the two goals are... Cause as much chaos as humanly possible for the police. Blame as many people for the outcome as you possibly can, other than the individual responsible for the outcome. In this case, Jalen Walker. And then number two, collect a great big fat fat settlement from a city. We have seen this scenario play out time and time and time again. The only reason they're disappointed, well, not the family, talking about the attorneys now. Obviously, the family is disappointed because they've suffered trauma. And my heart goes out to the Jalen Walker family. Their loved one did something extraordinarily stupid, whether it was guided by some sort of mental illness or impairment or, or state of mind, I do, I do not know. But they suffered something horrible and traumatic, and my heart goes out to them. I mean, I'll make that very, very clear. The attorneys representing their interests, however, are a little bit different. The reason they are so livid that there are going to be no charges against the eight Akron police officers is because getting charges, and especially if you can get a verdict against them, makes it much, 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 much more likely that they're going to make the millions that they're hoping to from a civil suit. And it will always be settled by the city because the city doesn't want to add to the trauma of the family. They're not going to put them through the, the you know, the, 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 the uh, difficulty of a full trial. We're going to go ahead and give them a great big fat multi-million dollars settlement because their loved one ran from cops and turned around and shot at them while driving, then ran from cops on foot and then turned around and reached for a waistband to grab for an imaginary gun, knowing exactly, had to know exactly, what the result was going to be. As for Amelia Sykes, Congresswoman Amelia Sykes, immediately calling for some sort of DOJ, Merrick Garland investigation into this, as if the federal investigation is going to turn up any more facts than the already independent investigation is going to turn up and change any of the outcome. I want to be very clear about something. I've talked about this in the past, and I want to, it, it, it seems to have more bearing uh, when we have cases like this, when I've talked about my own experiences uh, with grand juries. I've been on a grand jury. I was a grand jury for an entire summer session, a period of about three and a half months, um, and I was the four-person foreman of that grand jury. 
And I can tell you that in the grand jury process, if the prosecutor wants an indictment, the prosecutor will get the indictment. There is no two ways about it. If the prosecutor wants that grand jury to come back with an indictment or to bill, it's called bill or no bill, um, a particular suspect or the, the subject of an investigation that they're considering charges against, that prosecutor has a lot of wherewithal to do so. And the reason why is the grand jury process is not like a trial jury process in which the prosecutor speaks and presents all kinds of evidence, and then the defense speaks and presents their evidence. There is no defense in a grand jury proceeding. The prosecutor presents enough evidence, or as much evidence as they can gather, and presents it to the grand jury, and then when giving the grand jury instructions before their deliberations, essentially tells them whether or not they really believe they can get a conviction here based on this evidence or not. The implication being that as I really try to sway you guys, you know, I really think I can get them on this. There's a lot of evidence here that I can get them on this. This is what I'm telling you because this is what I want you to come back with. And they do it without saying those words, obviously. But I sat there through many of these presentations And I was in many deliberations, and I'm telling you that the prosecutor made it sound very, very different when it was like really, really kind of questionable here as to whether or not we can get a conviction here. But here's the evidence, and please go ahead and deliberate carefully. It's just blatantly obvious. Grand juries are influenced only by the prosecutor. So what am I saying? Well, here's what I'm saying vis-a-vis the Jalen Walker case down in Akron. I promise you that that prosecutor was under very, 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 very intense pressure to bring charges against these cops because they didn't want another American city to burn. If people freaked out and Black Lives Matter and Antifa came a-running in to torch and loot and steal and smash and everything else, I promise you there was some pro- some pressure to get a an indictment here, to bring these officers up on charges. After all, 90-plus shots were fired, 46 shots hit him. So, therefore, this is clearly excessive force. This is clearly overkill, uh, to borrow a word. Um, So we got to get them. we got to get these cops. We've got to set an example here. we got to make a statement that the rest of the country will be satisfied with. Remember, we're post-George Floyd now. If police officers kill a black suspect, there has to be some kind of blame that has to be foisted upon the, the, the police officers, right? So this prosecutor, I have no doubt, went in there with everything he had and tried very, very hard to convince the grand jury, again, based on my experiences with prosecutors in grand jury settings, tried very, very hard to lean them in the direction of coming back with an indictment. But after six days of deliberations and looking very, very closely at what you and I have looked at through the media coverage, They still couldn't get the indictment, even with the prosecutorial influence and no defense attorneys giving any evidence to grand jury members representing the police officers. Those grand jurors, nine of them, simply could not bring an indictment. And the reason is relatively obvious. This is one of the cleanest shoots that you are going to see that is called controversial 
in, in, in all of policing. Why? Well, there's a massive list of reasons why that I can't explain right now because of our clock, but the most obvious of which is this. Jalen Walker fired a gun at police officers. That's the end of the movie. That's the end of the story. You fire a gun at police officers during a car chase. First of all, the fact that you led them on a car chase. But you fire a gun at them. What happens if that strikes the windshield and goes through and kills a cop? What's the narrative then? He fired a gun at police officers, then pulled over and took off on foot and was pursued. And rather than surrendering and putting his hands up, he stops and turns around and faces the pursuing police officers and reaches to, and it's all on video, to his waistband. For what, you might ask? The reports are that he was unarmed. That's nice for you to know, sitting in the comfort of wherever it is you're listening to the radio right now. It's nice to know that he was unarmed. But the pursuing police officers who had just been shot at had no clue where the gun was. How would they know that Jalen Walker left it in his car when he took off on foot? How would they know it's not tucked into his waistband when he stops, turns, reaches for his waistband in a cross-draw motion and then forces the police officers to decide, do we wait to see what he pulls from that waistband and one of us takes one to the chest or do we end the threat right now? And eight separate police officers decided on their own accord that's a threat that we have to end right now. And yet here we sit. Complaints about racism in the police department. Complaints about the practices and procedures of the police department. Complaints about the um, uh, targeting or the profiling of the suspect by the police department. It's always the fault of the police department. And yes, the city of Akron will come up shooting with a few million dollars for the family of the man who decided to shoot at cops and then... It could be argued, it could be argued, knowing what had just happened as he turned and reached for his waistband, may have been committing suicide by cop. The story is not over by a long shot. We have a lot more to talk about. We're going to do that coming up here in about a half an hour because we're going to pivot after the bottom of the hour news. We're going to talk about uh, feminism and women's rights, real women's rights, as opposed to fake women's rights and what that means. We're going to talk to somebody who's an expert in the field. Uh, when we talk to Mary Harrington, that's coming up. But keep this uh, this in your mind and keep your powder dry, if you will. I'll take your phone calls on the Jalen Walker situation and what it was done yesterday at what I think was just a shameful press conference. Uh, we'll talk about that as we continue. Two one. Six nine zero one zero nine four five and triple eight two eight one eleven ten. This is always right radio on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob Frant and the answer. Nine thirty six. Thanks so much for being with us on Always Right Radio, AM 1420. The answer will come back to the Jalen Walker story. I needed to give you at least the primer 
to start the program about what happened in that case and what uh, hogwash most of what you heard in that ridiculous press conference was yesterday. We'll come back to that, but now let's get back to another familiar subject. You know, a lot of us have been saying, why does it seem like women aren't fighting for themselves when it comes to this uh, national uh, phenomenon that is the trans movement? Uh, It is a movement. It is an agenda. And there's so many of us fighting to protect women and real women, uh, women's sports, uh, just, just the concept of being female. And a lot of people have said, where are the women? Where are the feminists? Why aren't they coming out and defending womanhood? Why does it seem like they're conflicted uh, about whether or not, quote, trans women are real women? And that's the reality of the situation. Many of them are are not speaking out. Well, I want to welcome to the program now somebody who is doing that, who's doing more than just speaking out. She's actually writing a book about it. It comes out one week from today. Mary Harrington wrote Feminism Against Progress. It is, uh, it'll be released one week from today on April 25th. And, uh, Mary's book is going to do exactly what I said a lot of other women should be doing. And that is fighting for real women who are being essentially erased, uh, as a, as a sex, as a gender by the trans movement. Mary Harrington joins us now on AM 1420, the answer to discuss. Mary, good morning. It's good to have you aboard. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me in. Certainly. So let's talk. Now you're, you're, you're coming to us live from England, correct? That's right. That's right. Okay. It's actually the afternoon where I am. But good morning to you all. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I knew you were in England. I didn't know the time, though. So thank you for that clarification. Um, before we get started on the specifics of your book, let me let me ask you about that. Um, what does the trans movement look like in Europe or in England specific, if you would like to do that, compared to what we are seeing in the United States, where it has literally taken over everything? It seems a whole lot more insane where you are, I have to say. Uh, I think this is... The, the reason why it's more insane in America is a compli- like, it's a complicated question. Um, I think it comes down to a lot of cultural differences. But I think one of the key differences is that for, for a number of reasons, feminists, real feminists, I would say, in the UK noticed that this was going on a whole lot earlier. And the fight back started a whole lot earlier before laws were set in and the rules were changed such that it, was, it became increasingly difficult to push back, uh, which is, I think, where you find yourselves now in the United States. Um, there's a bunch of a bunch of cultural and political differences, obviously, between Britain and the United States. But really, the reality is that the British feminists began fighting back a lot sooner, and the attempt to change the rules so that anybody could just be recognised as whatever sex they say they were um, was it was stopped before it could actually become law. Even though it was, believe it or not, it was the Conservative Party who proposed doing that, and it was a bunch of. Uh, a bunch of ordinary mums, ordinary women, left-wing feminists, and actually trade unionists as well, um, who who mobilised a fight back against that in the United Kingdom. So for, so for that, we get called Turf Island. Um, the, the, the the feminists <laughs> of Britain, or, <laughs> yes, or, or or in the in the words of some who really don't like what we're doing, rainy fascist island. Um, I, I prefer to I prefer to think of us just as an, a a small island of sanity in a sea of uh, gender ideology madness. But even so, we're not we're not completely winning in Britain either. The, the, we have we, we have state-funded clinics that transition children. One of them was recently shut down for essentially encouraging children into this process, even when they hadn't been properly assessed. Um, but the, I, I think it's it's better regulated, it's better scrutinised, partly just because it's a smaller well, it's a smaller country, um, because the healthcare system is organised a little bit differently in Britain and in Europe in a way which makes. Um, 
new experimental treatments. I think the European nations are are generally a little bit more conservative about ploughing ahead with crazy experimental treatments, which includes expensive, crazy experimental gender medicine, um, which has these irreversible and harmful effects on the children who who it's inflicted on. So I think, yeah, the, the... yeah, the situation is very different. Of course, America is a very big country as well, and as I understand it, the situation varies greatly from state to state. And, you know, the pediatric gender medicine is now banned in Florida, but, but there, are, there are other states which say they won't, they won't give your kid back if, they, if, if he or she runs away to have, to have healthy body parts cut off in, in, in a correct. so-called sanctuary state. Yeah, that's so correct. In Washington uh, State, that's the, that, that is the state, uh, the state that just of happened, things right it? now. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I believe... And, uh, uh, Abigail Schreier, I think it is, recently raised the alarm about how this is essentially going to going to grease the rails for what for for child for people trafficking, for the trafficking of underage underage people into California, um, which and, and leave them leave them vulnerable without the care of um, an authoritative parent to be scooped up by the, the the pretty loveless and impersonal hands of state authorities from from which they can be passed on to into all sorts of nightmarish, exploitative scenarios. So there are people raising the alarm about this, but yeah, as, as, as far as I can make out, it's a, it's a very mixed, it's a mixed picture where you are, and there are some states that have come out strongly against it. And, and it's a, it seems like the fight is on in America. It is, it is. And some states have come out strongly against it, but they do so at their peril because they are attacked, of course, by so many as being, uh, as being bigots or as being homophobes, transphobes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a difficult thing here. Um, we're talking to Mary Harrington. She is the author of a new book that comes out one week from today called Feminism Against Progress. Mary, uh, I want to ask a little bit about your experience. Part of the, um, uh, information about you that I learned is that, um, you once lived under the name Sebastian. In a what is described <laughs> as a sex, sexually liberated lesbian commune, uh, and you had a little bit of a different experience there than maybe you thought you would. Can you tell us what that's about? I guess I was an early adopter of a whole lot of the gender ideology, which has now become universal. It's become just the um, the mainstream norm, it seems, for a great many young people. Um, this was all this was all some time ago. I mean, I'm I'm in my forties now, and I was I was I was calling myself Sebastian when I was in my mid twenties. So really, really some time ago, but I guess I was an early adopter of the idea of genderqueer, and I was, I was very into all of that. It was a very small scene in London at the time. It seems to have taken over the world now. But, but yeah, I, 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 I went all the way there. I called myself Sebastian for a while. I think if, if non-binary had been a thing, I'd have been completely there. I mean, I was, I was very into all of that. And to cut a long story short, um, it, just, it just stopped being fun. Um, a whole lot, a whole lot of things fell apart in my life at the same time. And by the time I put the pieces back together, um, I'd moved out of London. I'd I'd met the man I'm now married to. I'd fallen in love, and I I was I felt like I was just a different person. I was making a having tried all the ways I could possibly be um, experimental and different and um, smashing all of the cis heteropatriarchal whatever yeah blah 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 um, and decided and discovered that having discovered that all of that kind of sucked in practice for me at least it certainly sucked. Um, I, I had decided to have a go at being normal, and it turned out that actually there's a lot about being normal that's kind of nice. So, <laughs> so that, that's that's where I found myself sort of seven or so years later. And really, what the final nail in the coffin was having a baby and realizing that actually freedom, certainly for women, um, this this goal that I'd always always internalized as being the ultimate objective of feminism, which was to be free on the same terms as men, was kind of more complicated if you're a mum, because freedom actually freedom is a complicated you know, to. To say, oh, I just want to be free doesn't really make sense if you've got a seven-month-old baby who's screaming for milk. 
It's just you don't want to be free. In fact, what you want to be is in a place where you can, you can meet that baby's needs. And so this, I, this idea that feminism is just about freedom stopped making sense to me. And because I'm kind of a nerd who, who has to think ideas all the way through, you know, I said about trying to make sense of, you know, why, how, how this feminism, which I'd absorbed pretty much from, from Simone, reading Simone de Beauvoir at the age of 12, could have sent me down such a, such a limited and such a, such a narrow and un- incomplete path. And uh, anyway, it was, a, it was a very long rabbit hole. And by the time I came up out of it, decide, having decided that what, what we think of as feminism isn't really evidence of progress as such. Um, it's, it's more of a side effect of the Industrial Revolution and the, the way family life had to change in order to adjust to the Industrial Revolution. And this is, this is all in the book. So that I, I did a whole long rummage around in the history of feminism and came to think that actually where we are now is that we've, we've come out the other side of feminism. We've arrived, we've arrived someplace new that is no longer feminism. Um, it, it travels under the banner of feminism, but I think of it more as bio-libertarianism, which is to say a, compl- a libertarianism of the body, which, which says that no matter what your physical form, you can, you're, we're all identical and interchangeable, and it doesn't matter what sex we are. Our sex no longer matters. Our bodies no longer matter. We can reshape our bodies as we see fit, and this is, the, and this is a fundamental civil right. And this libertarianism of the body calls itself feminism, and the reason, you know, this question you posed right at the beginning of this segment where you said, where are the feminists? Mm. And, the, and, and really, the, the short answer to that question is that the feminists are very confused. They're, they're arguing amongst themselves about whether or not a libertarianism of the body is good for women. And in my view, it very much isn't. It is, it is not good for women to say that we can all just do as we want with our bodies. Because at the end of the day, if you're a woman, there are, there are times when your body makes you vulnerable. And actually, um, if we can't be honest about the, the reality of our bodies, then we'll continue to be vulnerable, and those vulnerabilities will be exploited. And that's really where we find ourselves on a whole load of fronts, whether that's with, with women, women being impregnated in prison by quote-unquote women, who, or rather males who identify as women, or whether that's women who are having their, their sports trophies stolen from under their noses by males who identify as women, or a, a, whole, raft of other, um, a, a whole raft of other ways in which women's bodies are now being exploited. Um, all of which is being legitimized by those so-called feminists who are really libertarians of the body. Um, who, who ben- who, and some of, some of these women benefit in subtle ways from, from pretending that our bodies don't matter. But the vast majority of women, particularly poorer women, working class women, and, and women in prison, women in sports, are, are, feeling, feeling, are at the sharp end of that and feeling the negative effects of that. So really, where are the feminists? They're on both sides of this argument, is the answer. Yeah, uh, which is which is very strange because you would think that if anything would be unifying, it would be an attack on womanhood. You know, many people talk about, um, you know, uh, what they're now calling woman face, uh, kind of par- uh, par- a parody of blackface, right. which is, you know, of course, very insulting to pretend to be someone else for 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 for, for purposes of, of entertainment, perhaps, or for uh, whatever they are. Um, why aren't more women just offended by the fact that some male can put on a sports bra that he doesn't need, put on makeup, uh, and, and, say, and tuck himself in, if you will, between his legs and say, I'm a woman? Why aren't more women offended by that saying, you have no idea what it means to be a woman? How dare you? To be honest, I think, I think a, lot of women, a lot of women quietly are pretty offended. But here's, here's the thing about women. Most of us are fairly, most of us don't like to fight. Most of us don't like to stand up and, and be the one who sticks their neck out and says, uh, I, I, I disagree and I'm going to fight you all. Most, most women just aren't like that. If you think about the women you know, most of them are not aggressive, argumentative, confrontational. 
most women want 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 everyone to get along, and, and most women want to be kind. And that that's a it's much more of a motivation statistically if you look at the at the psychology studies amongst it, the many more women than men would prefer everybody just to be able to get along and would prefer to be able to find to find a compromise to find a peaceful resolution and most and is many more women than men is that why a woman like is that why I'm sorry Mary is that why a woman like Riley Gaines stands out as much as she does she's she is extraordinary she's a real warrior I, I admire that young woman immensely because she's she's faced down some really very intense hostility. I saw the videos from that from from, from that university where she was trapped in the room right. for for several hours, I believe it was, and she missed her flight and she was being attacked by men um, who were screaming in her face and shoving her around. She's an extraordinarily courageous woman. I mean, it takes a huge amount of grit even just to reach that level of athletic attainment, you know, at such a young age. And I think I think there's something very remarkable about her. Yeah, it takes a it takes a certain it takes a certain force of personality to stand up, especially in the face of an overwhelming moral consensus that says this is this this is what makes you a good person. And in, and and most people really of both sexes don't want to risk the, everybody they know thinking they're a bad person. Most people just don't want to stick their neck out. And I think a lot of that is what that, that's that's a great deal of the issue. People are just afraid of being the bad guy. And people are afraid of being shunned in their social circles. People are afraid of losing status. And somehow this is this, this fantasy that humans can change sex, which is not true, um, has taken on the force of a sort of moral taboo um, to, to a quite an insane degree. Um, the, the venue for my New York City book launch next week uh, was, was pressured into withdrawing um, just a few days ago as a consequence of... Um, as a consequence of activists contacting them on organizing a pylon on social media anonymously to say, Mary has said that humans can't change sex and therefore therefore you mustn't host her. Which is insane, really, because humans can't change sex. So, no, they cannot. You're praising Riley Gaines true. as being courageous. I apologize. We're having a little uh, delay here issue, so I apologize for talking over to you. But Mary Harrington, you talk about Riley Gaines being heroic and courageous. You are, too, because if you are experiencing it yourself right now. You wrote a book like this. You knew the kind of reaction it was going to draw. You knew that those who are uh, you know, a part of this intersectionality and pro-trans movement were going to come at you hard, and they're doing that. And they're going to try to limit you. They're going to try to uh, cancel your book. They're going to try to stop you from promoting it and so on and so forth. So this is the kind of courage it takes for more women and more people. But like I said, specifically, women have to fight for their own identity and their own classification as women as being part of the sexual binary. I absolutely agree. And I think and I think if we're going to be able to do that and we're going to have it make sense, um, we it's it means we need to take it a little bit further than just saying this far and no further. We have to be a little bit more honest, I think, perhaps than some feminists have been the feminists of my mother's generation about the limits to to equality. And, and by that, I don't mean that women should all go back to the kitchen and just and, and, or, you know, stop voting or something insane like that, because that's clearly not going to happen. Certainly, I have no, no desire to, going back, to go back to being the property of my husband, as was effectively the case in the 19th century. But there are, there are situations, and I've written a little bit about women in the military, and that there are some situations where physicality matters. And we have to be honest about that, and we have to be able to speak frankly, about those ways in which physical reality and the realities of sex dimorphism actually matters. And we have to be able to talk about those honestly, really where both sexes are concerned. Mm-hmm. So that's so where, where pregnancy and childbirth and breastfeeding make, make women distinctively vulnerable. We need to be able to speak about that. 
and and also where men are physically stronger. And in fact, that that has a material impact on the kind of work that that men are able to do. We need to be able to speak about that as well. We 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 have to be honest about the bodies that we that that we all occupy and that and and that we and that we use to. Yeah, we 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 have to be honest about what we are as animals as well as as, as living souls and minds. Yeah, and honesty left the room a long time ago when it came to this movement. Uh, Mary Harrington is our guest. She is an author. She has written a new book that is released one week from today on April 25th. It's called Feminism Against Progress. It's a regnery book. Uh, I'm looking at it on the Amazon page. You can look at it in a lot of places and find her book. Mary, I've got two more quick questions for you. One is about social contagion. You mentioned Abigail Schreier a short while ago. She has written and spoken a lot about the social contagion here in the States. And I know it's not quite the same as we uh, established in the beginning of our chat. But here in the States, you have, you know, six, seven, eight girls from the same class and the same friend group all showing up at uh, uh, centers looking for puberty blockers, looking for, uh, you know, uh, hormones and looking to start their transition progress together, which, of course, indicates that this is not six or seven different people who all have been struck by something called gender dysphoria. It is a social contagion as Abigail and many right. others have written about. Can you talk to, speak, to, speak to that aspect of this? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it was well recognized until about 10 minutes ago that teenage girls in particular are extremely vulnerable to social contagion uh, in ter- when it comes to psych- psychiatric distress. There have been well-documented instances of um, an entire peer group developing the same tick pretty much simultaneously or developing strange fainting fits. Um, psychosomatic distress and psychiatric distress is a common feature of, of adolescence for young women and has been for a very long time. And it was well understood that social contagion um, played a significant role in that for, for young women. Until about 10 minutes ago when everybody suddenly started insisting that trans identity was something innate and natural and in fact which should be treated not, by, not, not with therapy and, and empathy and, and an effort to get well, but in fact by cutting off breasts and, and, and supplying masculinizing hormones. Um, but, but, and yet anybody with eyes and a functioning brain can see that, as you say, what's going on is that, is that teenage girls are suffering the, the, psych, the psychic distress which has been common to the teenage girls since time immemorial. They're struggling with, with the change from being a child to being a young woman. And it is difficult. I remember, I remember struggling with it. There are a lot, there's a whole lot of stuff that just doesn't seem to make sense. And a whole lot of a whole lot of attention that you suddenly get, which doesn't really make sense because you know physically you may look different, but really in reality you're still pretty much a child. There's a lot, and and particularly in the age of social media and the the competitiveness and the hothouse environment of of all, all these children largely living their lives in Instagram, um, which has been shown by in, in in repeated studies to have a significant, even admitted by Facebook themselves, by Meta as they're called now, to have a significant harmful effect on the mental health of young of young women, in particular. Um, so, so all of this and and the the endemic availability of internet pornography, which is rotting the brains of both sexes, but I'm sure is having a, a fairly dramatic effect on <laughs> on the on the kind of attention and the kind of suggestions and the kind of quest the kind of interactions these young girls are having with their with their male peers. Um, all of this is feeding into a profound psychiatric distress, which they're then, and, and to be honest, I don't blame them for saying, I'm just opting out of the whole thing. I'm, I'm, I'm just not feeling it. I, 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 I just want out. And saying, well, you know, if, if I'm hating all of this, you know, if the, the, the problem isn't the world. Surely the problem can't be the world. Surely the problem has to be me. And maybe, maybe if I cut these bits off and alter these other bits, maybe I'll feel better again. And you, you, I sort of don't blame these, these, these poor girls for, for, for responding in this way. But but really, what the 
what they're what they're experiencing is is on on the same lines as the cutting epidemic and the anorexia epidemic right. and these countless other epidemics of ticks and, and and other other physical manifestations of what is fundamentally emotional distress that have been present and very noticeable in groups of teenage girls for a very very long time and the fact that this is being denied and in fact you know in fact there have been academics who've been who've been monstered in the press by 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 the by their woke opponents for daring to suggest that in fact what's going on here is a is an epidemic of psychic distress and social a social contagion of psychic distress. Abigail Schreier's book was pulled from Amazon, I believe, for daring to suggest yes, it was. That this was social contagion. Yeah, and and, this, and, and I think that's Please continue. Yeah, it's a, she, she's another extraordinarily courageous woman. And, and it, it's, it's genuinely outrageous to me as a feminist, as somebody who cares for the interests of young women and who, you know, who remembers being a young woman and how, how confusing and disorienting and upsetting that can be sometimes, to see these women being so, so horribly betrayed. I mean, there have been, there have been young detransitioners. I believe Chloe Cole is quite, has, has been quite high profile in recent, in recent Indeed, yes. months. Um, and she's she's actually suing her healthcare provider for having having encouraged her down this path, and and allowed, subjected her to a radical double mastectomy at the age of fifteen. Right, this poor girl. And, there are a lot of there are a lot of detransitioners yeah. de- now who are coming back and 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 expressing their 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 disgust and their and their anger at the adults in their lives who failed them at the time when they were their it's most terrible. vulnerable when they were confused they may be in being pulled a certain direction by whatever social media or or whatever other social influences uh, were a part of that and the adults were the ones who were supposed to bring some sanity and some reality to their lives and the adults said no go do it let's let's schedule it uh, those are the people that are the most uh, the most responsible for for you know the plight of so many of these young people who make such terrible tragic Absolutely. and life altering decisions. Absolutely, genuinely disgraceful. Yes, the conspiracy of silence between between wealthy women who 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 don't who want to go on pretending that biological sex doesn't matter, and if you'll forgive me, middle aged male fetishists who like to who like to dress up as girls the, and, who, and, and who need to invent transgender children in order to justify their own their that own is erotic so fantasies. Spot on. That is that, bluntly that is what's going on. Yeah, and it's a conspiracy so of silence that's being led by those two groups, and it's being it's being fed by a rapacious um, biomedical industry, which is profiteering off the distress of these young people. It's a genuinely shocking situation, and I think the the, the sooner they're the sooner they're drowned in lawsuits, the better. Burn I it all to the ground. Concur. Uh, so much great information just in a short conversation here. You can imagine what's in the rest of the book. This book comes out. You can pre-order it now. I'm looking again at Amazon. Uh, April 25th, it's Feminism Against Progress by Mary Harrington. Mary, do you have a website as well, or do we just send people to Amazon? I'm a contributing editor at the UK Current Affairs magazine Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, and my, my substack, my weekly newsletter, is Reactionary Feminist substack. Reactionary so you can, you can find substack. me on either of those places. Reactionary Feminist. Terrific. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for thank writing you so this much. book as well. We appreciate it. Thank you. That's Mary Harrington joining us all the way from England this morning. Uh, well, afternoon, her, her uh, time, as she said. Feminism Against Progress is the book. It's extraordinarily important. And we'll be back. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. 
All righty then, hour number two underway. At 11 minutes after 10 o'clock, we broke a little bit late for the news, but we're catching up now. It's the 18th morning of the fourth month of the year of our Lord, 2023. Thanks so much for uh, being with us. Thanks again to Mary Harrington, a terrific presentation on a book that is coming out in a week that you really should check out. Coming up in about an hour, we're going to talk to Newsweek's Josh Hammer. But I want to spend this hour talking about what happened in Akron. And I want to talk about the response to what happened in Akron. Because that, to me, is what is uh, one of the most outrageous things to come down the line in some time. And I'll get, speaking of outrageous, I'm going to give you a little bit of this. First of all, just for those who need a backgrounder, Jalen Walker was shot and killed by Akron police. He's black, uh, which apparently matters because it's 2023, and it's in a post-George Floyd world. Every anytime, uh, uh a criminal breaks the law or a suspect uh, breaks the law. If they happen to be African-American and there's an encounter with police, you have to point out that this was a black man, capital B. AP style says capital B, always capital B, uh, a black man was shot by police. So therefore it advances the narrative. Um, we need to hit this, and we need to hit this hard. He was shot after he shot at cops. This is not a matter of speculation. It's not a part of somebody's story. It was on camera. He turned as he fled cops who were trying to pull him over for a traffic violation the second night in a row by the way he was discovered in the same area and fled from police uh it was simply a a, a matter of nobody could see his license plate because he had a burnout license plate light so they were they, they let him go the first time they saw him they observed it they let it go and then a little while later he came back to the same area and they said apparently it didn't look like he was driving toward a destination he was just driving around in circles and uh, just you know with nowhere to go particularly so they saw again the burned out plate light so they they tried to stop him rather than just deal with the traffic stop and maybe get a citation or at least a warning for the traffic light he fled as he fled uh they chased and as they chased he turned around and fired a gun at them period point blank that's the end of the movie or at least it it, it should be no surprise to you if it is the end of the movie you shoot at cops um all bets are off now so he shot at cops police kept pursuing he stopped his car he fled on foot police also fled and then as he decided to stop running, he stopped and turned full, facing full, uh, you know, straight ahead to the police officers, reached cross draw, meaning like with his right hand to his left hip toward his waistband, which is a pretty good indicator he's going to pull something out there that might be, um, you know, dangerous, like the gun that he had just fired at the police from the car. Uh, and the police fired. They shot him in uh, some 90, uh, 90 times, eight officers. It wasn't like one person shot 90 times. Eight officers fired between three and 18 times, 40-plus, so roughly about 50% of the bullets hit him, and he was killed. He did not have the gun on him at the time. Police did not know that, of course. Again, they had just been fired upon, and then he ran and uh, left the gun in the car. Police had no idea whether or not he was reaching for an actual gun or what he was doing. It was a pretty ridiculously stupid thing to do. But it was what he did. Now, I bring all of that up to bring you this little piece of audio from yesterday's bizarre press conference held uh, by the attorneys for Jalen Walker's family. And I want to say what I said at the top of the show again now for perfect clarity. My heart goes out to the Walker family. This is not on them. They've suffered a terrible loss. They've suffered a great trauma. You'd have to be heartless to not feel the same. I don't blame them for feeling awful. I don't blame them for being grieving their loved one's loss. 
I don't even blame them if they want to hold somebody else responsible. But I have a huge problem when this press conference filled with family, elected officials like Amelia Sykes, and attorneys essentially say the police don't matter. The fact that the police officers were not indicted by the grand jury that heard tons of evidence only from a prosecutor whose, whose goal, if he feels like there needs to be a prosecution of the cops, whose goal uh, is to present enough evidence to make that happen. And the grand jury heard all of the evidence without any defense evidence or commentary or presentation or anything else, because that's not how grand juries work. Nobody from the police side gets to speak. And yet with only the prosecutor side saying, this is the evidence we have against them, that grand jury said, no, we can't indict based on that. There's no way. But that didn't stop this uh, press conference yesterday in the aftermath of that uh, decision by the grand jury from happening. So the voice you're about to hear, or voices rather, are from um, a couple of the attorneys, including Bobby DiCello, who is the lead attorney who represented the Walker family, or represents the Walker family, I guess I should say, in this case. Now, this is a guy who had a vested interest in getting an indictment and maybe even a conviction, because if you get a conviction, it's much easier to win the civil suit against the city thus making millions of dollars for the family, and yes, a 33% contingency fee for the attorney, usually around 33%. So he's not happy. But what he says about the grand jury process here is secondary to what I'm going to play for you now, which is what he says about the police officers themselves. The chief of police in Akron has refused to give the names of the eight police officers because these police officers are being threatened with their lives. So are their families for doing their jobs. They're being threatened by the same type of radical activists that come out and trash and destroy things whenever there is a a police-involved shooting involving a black man, capital B, um, and they don't get a satisfactory decision from a grand jury or a jury. This is the same type of people. So to think that this might not be a safe thing to do to release the name of the police officers, well, you know, it's a pretty reasonable decision, I think, by the chief. But uh, asked by the media, Bobby DiCello proceeds to laugh at, almost, or mock the threat that police officers face in situations like this. I want you to listen to this and tell me if it doesn't make your blood boil. I think the names at this point might be the worst kept secret, you know, in the city. I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, I don't know what the, the concern is. You know, the, the narrative, though, is designed to continue the danger, the threat to law enforcement. It's all about what we present, we who oppose their point of view. We present this threat to their safety. You hear the mockery? It's all about the, the threat that is posed to police officers in their safety. He's mocking the police officers who had been fired at by Jalen Walker. Oh, it's all about their safety. And now that, you know, there's death threats against them. Oh, it's all about the protecting of the police officers. The mockery, the disdain coming from the mouth of this piece of human flotsam and jetsam named Bobby DiCello. You heard me. Bobby DiCello, the attorney representing the Walker family has no regard whatsoever for the lives 
that are put on the line every day by the people who wear the badge, who don't necessarily like being shot at. And when the opportunity comes for a second shot to be taken at them, might just want to end that threat before it happens. The disgust that this guy presents toward cops is is just repulsive. But listen to him. As I said, the opening days of this case, I received death threats. My name is Bobby DiCello, and I represent Jalen Walker. Prove it. You, sir, are absolutely unable to prove that for one second. Who do you think would have threatened the, the, the defense attorney? You're not even a defense because it's, you're a civil attorney. You're a civil attorney. You're representing this family in what's going to be a huge civil lawsuit. Nobody threatened you. You're nobody. He's going to try to say, I've received death threats, and listen to me. I'm Bobby DiCello, and I represent Jalen Walker. He's acting as if I'm tougher than the police. I'm not afraid to have my name out there. That's because nobody is threatening you because there's no radical BLM or Antifa organization or some other bunch of left, <clears throat> left-wing left kooks who are literally uh, a threat to you the way they are to those police officers. Who the hell do you think you are, Bobby DiCello? Yes. So we're hearing that there are plans to file a civil suit. You know, what does that look like for you guys? Is that accurate? Well, we're going to file a civil suit. You can. You were always going to file a civil suit. You see seven zeros. You see seven zeros in your contingency fee. When the city of Akron does what the city of Cleveland did and what all of these cities do, They don't want the publicity of a trial, uh, a civil trial, so they settle. And they just give these these grifters like Bobby DiCello everything that they can. Oh, they had the mayor up there. They had the mayor up there crying for Jalen Walker. Well, what would the message have been had Jalen Walker actually hit one of the officers? when he turned and fired at them during that chase. What if there's a dead cop right now? Is the mayor out there eulogizing Jalen Walker? Are elected officials out there eulogizing Jalen Walker? He shot at cops. And now you're, whether I believe we're going to file a civil suit, of course you are, because you're going to enrich yourself off of this tragedy. Print that. We're going to be filing it before the one-year anniversary of his death. I would expect it to be filed around June 1st to June 15th, something in there. And you have absolutely nothing on which to file that case. But you know the city will settle anyway, because it's how they make these things go away. So yesterday, Fox 8 News... I want to give credit to one of the local news stations that I think did the best job of this. I printed it, and I watched the presentation as well. They actually printed, or excuse me, they actually ran on their uh, on their uh, uh, news program as well as on their website the headline, What We Didn't Know Before. In other words, if you were one of the many Northeast Ohioans who had been lamenting, oh my gosh, the police killed another black man, which is a narrative that should not exist because the police kill far more white people than they do black people in encounters, but they never, ever see the news. They never get covered. 
because they don't matter. Because a white suspect being shot, white person, small w, lowercase w, doesn't bring the, the, the ratings, the clicks, the likes, the purchases that a black man, capital B, does. It should be absolutely of no consequence. But, but let's get back to the point here. Um, Channel 8, Fox 8, did a tremendous job of pre- presenting it as literally, quote, what we didn't know before. All of the things that had people outraged about the shooting of this black man. Um, we didn't know some of the evidence that we know now. We didn't know that he was uh, on camera shooting at the police officers. We didn't know what we found, that he stopped and turned and reached for his waistband when he was told to stop, obviously, and put his hands in the air. We didn't know that they tried to tase him first and that that didn't work. We didn't know all of the things that Jalen Walker was doing prior to the chase. We didn't know that he was also involved in a chase the night before, and they gave that one up because they didn't want to get into any uh, accidents. We didn't know all of the history of Jalen Walker and the fact that Jalen Walker's fiance had just passed away a very short time before this uh, incident, that maybe he was distraught and distressed, and that's why he did what he did, committing suicide by cop. We didn't know a lot of these things. And the reality is that very few um, press outlets are willing to do what Fox 8 did here, and that is tell the whole story. And the fact that, yes, Cuyahoga Falls Officer Jared Heatwell was stationed at an intersection when Akron police were pursuing Walker for the broken taillight, and his camera was the one that caught the gunshot coming from Walker's car. Apparently nobody knew that before. Police said he shot at us, but now they have it on camera. And that was shown to the grand jury. You surprised that the grand jury didn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, took that piece of information and said, you know, that might be an indication that the police think that they're in danger. The fact that they're being shot at. While an interest ramp, a uh, sound of a gunshot came out, and the Akron PD unit appeared to attempt to swerve away from the suspect vehicle's line of fire, wrote Heatwell from Cuyahoga Falls in the incident report. Officers then called a Signal 21, the highest response level for Akron Police Department. They called for all available officers officers to assist. The shell casing from Walker's gun was found on the gun route. Nobody knew that before either. There is no doubt that he did, did in fact, shoot at the police officers, Attorney General Dave Yost said. Prosecutors presented a receipt showing Walker bought the firearm and ammunition at a firing range on June 20th, just days before the shooting. He was seen at a gun range nearly two weeks prior firing guns with a friend, which, of course, is fine, but it does beg, uh, it does, uh, uh, beg the question, and it makes you wonder. This is the first time he'd ever had a gun, first time he'd ever fired a gun, first time he'd ever bought a gun, and a few days later he's shooting it at cops. So what does that tell you? That maybe there was an intention here. Maybe he's driving around in circles in an area where it was described by the police that he didn't seem like he was going anywhere for two nights in a row, waiting for a confrontation, perhaps. And then as soon as one happens and a chase is on, he fires a gun at the cops. All of this information was probably material to the presentation to the grand jury. But Bobby DiCello and Amelia Sykes and the rest of these grifters at this press conference yesterday who are just looking to make out Amelia Sykes politically, Bobby DiCello financially by representing a family and bragging about how, my name is Bobby DiCello. I'm not afraid. I've gotten death threats. You have not, you freaking liar, you little worm. Bobby DiCello is a grifter. 
These types of attorneys make me sick to my stomach. He sees zeros, lots of zeros at the end of a check that he gets once he gets a settlement for the family uh, from the city of Akron. We've seen it happen all too often. Lots of times these police-involved shootings are controversial. Lots of times they're very, very hard to figure out. This is not one of them. This is about as clean as it gets. The police were fired upon. The individual who fired upon them then turned and grabbed for a waistband in the dark. Of course they're going to think he's about to fire again. They shoot in self-defense. Textbook law enforcement. Game over. Case closed. Let me just say this in closing. Akron. City Council. Mayor, safety director, legal director, do not settle. Do not give a nickel. Let's stop this nonsense. Stop the, quote, justice for Jalen protest. Stop the justice for Jalen mentality. Justice came in the form. Jalen Walker determined what justice was going to happen when he fired a gun at police and then turned and made it look as though he was going to do it again. Justice was decided by Jalen, no one else. We have to stop this this habit that big cities are in of rewarding financially families of people who do terrible things. It needs to stop. The city of Akron, wise up. This is a trauma and it's a tragedy for the Walker family, but they do not deserve to get rich from it. And the taxpayers of Akron do not deserve the bill. I want to talk to you at 216-901-0945, You got thoughts? Let me hear you for the next half hour on AM 1420, The Answer. Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. 10.38 now, Always Right Radio. Let's get some phone calls going at 216-901-0945 and 888 A grand jury has declined to indict eight Akron police officers who shot in self-defense after they had been shot at by Jalen Walker, and there were protests all night in Akron. <laughs> From what I understand, I don't think any violence happened. I don't think any uh, damage was done or not too much. I don't have any firsthand reports of that. But uh, but they're protesting because, well, police apparently are supposed to take live fire and not fight back, I guess. Um, TJ's in Cleveland. TJ, you're on AM 1420, The Answer. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, hi, Bob. You know, it seems to me the big bone of contention here is why they have to fire so many shots. I know why they have to fire so many shots. You know, first of all, my bet is none of these policemen were ever involved in a firefight before that that incident. You know, when the fear and the adrenaline kicks in, it was just like in in Nam there when you'd have a new soldier show up that had no experience. It wasn't unusual for them to burn a whole 20-round clip just to take out one enemy. After a while, the game slowed down for them, and uh, they performed better. And, you know, just to make my point, one of the best police officers this city ever had was Jim Simone. Uh, and he was involved in, in numerous, uh, I guess, firefights in his career in Cleveland. Never once did he ever unload a, an entire weapon, you know, to take down uh, a suspect. Right. But 
But the difference with Simone was Simone served in Vietnam in the 101st Airborne Division in a combat unit. He was very experienced in firefights. So, you know, to get on these cops saying why did they have to fire so much, I think is, is just not fair to the policemen there. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, and thank you, TJ, for the phone call. I think there's something to that about <clears throat> your first shooting. And for most cops, their first shooting is their only shooting. I mean, I mean, Steve Loomis has been a cop for 30 years. I talk to him all the time. <clears throat> He's never had to pull his gun on fire. Um, I, I talk to police officers who have been in the uh, line of fire and have had to do it. I talked, you know, Sheriff David Clark. Sheriff David Clark walked that beat for 25 years before he retired. And, um, and he, I asked him, I said, you know, cause he's actually the host of, uh, the, the True Blue program, um, Cops in the Line of Fire. And I interviewed him for that. Of course, that's the, the streaming network that I do my show on called True Blue Today. And I always ask you to subscribe to that. It's only $4.99 a month. Uh, but my show is True Blue Today and Sheriff Clark's is, uh, is Cops in the Line of Fire. And I said, tell me about, you know, your own experience in the Line of Fire. And he said, I've never, been, I've never had to, I've never had to do that. I've never been shot at. I said, all those years? He said, yeah. He said, that's the case with most, most cops. Despite what the media wants you to think, we don't often have to pull our weapons and we don't often get shot at. It's just that they put such a huge premium on pointing out every time there is one if it involves a minority. If it involves a black man, capital B, um, then, of course, you're going to see it all of the time. He said, but the overwhelming majority of cops go through the careers without actually having to fire their weapon. Thank God. Now, I would probably venture to say that that is, has been the case maybe over the last you know, 30, 40, 50, and, and, and some odd years. It's probably changing a lot more now because of what? And I know I'm getting off on a tangent here, but allow me a moment. Because so many of the violent criminals in America's biggest and most dangerous cities now are not being prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law by left-wing DAs. They're not even being held for crying out loud. There's probably going to be more... Um, exhibitions of force that are necessary against violent criminals in the coming 10, 15, 20 years than we have had in the last 20 or 30 years because of the emboldening of criminals by the, uh, the justice system. And the cops, of course, are the ones who are going to have to pay the price. They're the ones who are going to get shot at more often. They're the ones who are going to get resisted more often. They're going to be the ones that are attacked more often. And they're going to have to find a way to defend themselves uh, without you know, either ending up in a morgue or a hospital, or a jail cell, because those are the three options. If things go sideways, you, that those are the options. You're either going to get killed, or you're going to get hospitalized, or you're going to end up defending yourself and then being prosecuted and put in a jail cell. So it is a very, very terrible thing. To your point, TJ, about the number of, of shots fired, I'm sure that's true because of the inexperience and in the adrenaline and in the moment, uh, you are about to get shot at again. You were just shot at by this guy. Now he's reaching. If these guys are quick to tap, 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 it's very easy for that shot total to, uh, to, you know, to, to go up. Uh, eight officers. If each of them shoot, you know, 10 to 12 times, you're looking at, you know, 80, uh, you know, to 90 shots. And that's exactly what happened here. And the other thing, too, is, again, not being a police officer, I would imagine, you know, especially in the dark, you don't know if you're hitting your target. You may be firing and you're not exactly sure until they hit the ground. So that's another element to this, too. TJ, thank you, my friend. Great call. Let's go to uh, Bob in Middleburg. Uh, Bob, you're on the air. Go ahead, sir. Good morning, Matt. Uh, first of all, I don't think this is a tragedy anymore. This has become a reality, kind of going along with what you just said. But also, 
you mentioned a family filing a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And if the family chooses to file a lawsuit, there needs to be a consequence if they lose their case. This is getting ridiculous. I mean, you look at all the investigative fees that were involved with this, the legal fees, the court costs, the public property destruction in a lot of these cases. And these people just get off free. Someone, like I said, if you're, this is a win-win for them, for the family. Like I said, this is wrong. They've got a, there's a, needs to be a consequence for what they're doing also, because when they file that, basically what they're saying, what he did was okay. That's what that means. Well, here's the here's you know, the problem. And again, it's proven it's proven in a court of law, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's here's the problem. Um, they they won't have to face consequences if they lose because they won't lose. It'll never go to a trial. The city always settles. The city will hand out a big multi million dollar fat settlement to them, like they did to Samaria Rice and like they did for uh, for so many others. Uh, you know, in, in, in I just mentioned the one in Cleveland, but if you look at, look around the country, the yeah. cities always settle rather than fight the fight. But in court. where did Jackson get that authority to give Tamir Rice's mother that money? Is that is that listed in the duties of a mayor? Is he actually allowed to do that? I am guessing that there is probably. Uh, uh, um, a number of individuals they probably had to had to be approved by city council probably had to be recommended by the city's legal director that that would be my I, guess if the, I, I don't if the, know if the, like if, said, the lawyers, is, if the lawyers for the city is my point tell the mayor or tell the city council or whatever we can't win this case or if we do it's going to cost us more money to fight it and so on and so forth plus the bad publicity well, well, here again, I, recommend, here again. I recommend settling the case then then, then i think that's it, probably how the decision but if that be. case would have went to trial because those officers were freed if that case would have went to trial and she lost that case then her and al sharpen whoever else she had backing her up they're going to be responsible to pay for this. Then no, I don't this disagree. Is on them. They're going to Bob, pay for Bob, I don't else. disagree, but I'm just trying to point out the way they're going to okay, hear it. Yeah. The way they're going to hear it is, and you know, and then there's the, like I said, there's the publicity part of it. Here's 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 the way the media would cover it: brutal, evil city of Cleveland um, uh, attacking. Um, mother who lost child, uh, you know, a 12-year-old child in to gunfire at a city park, and the city of Cleveland cross-examining her and attacking her. As Samaria Rice goes up on that on that stand and cries before the cameras and everything else, and the city of Cleveland will look like bullies. She already lost her 12-year-old son, and now they're going to put her through this. That's why they say, you know what, we got to make this go away. Let's write the check. <laughs> But you can't bully with the truth. That's the thing. I know. You know, Listen, if the truth came out of the matter, you know, I, I think, I'm again, I, I just don't. I'm not yeah. a lawyer, my friend, but, Bob, since when does the truth play a, a major role in the law? So many sad times world it we're living does in. not. Yeah. It's a sad reality. Yes, yes. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate the call. Uh, and that's, I'm, you know, like I said, I can sit here and beg, and I'm telling you right now, I'll beg the legal director, uh, the law director at uh, the city of Akron, I don't know who it is, uh, or if there's an, an office of individuals, or if it's just one law director, but I would, I'm begging you, put an end to this, put an end to this stuff. These, these ridiculously unfounded, frivolous lawsuits that are just settled and paid off, fight them, make them go to court, make the Walker family Put Bobby DiCello, look how brave I am. I've got death threats. Make him go there in a court of law and defend Jalen Walker's shooting at police officers on live video. Put it on big, giant screens for the entire court to see. 
Let the entire city, let the entire courtroom, and by extension, the entire country uh, in, in the media coverage of this see exactly what happened there. Make them do it. Don't settle. Don't give them a nickel. I'm tired of this. Criminals doing criminal things. Police officers doing what they have to do to protect and serve, including, in this case, take shots at them, then defend themselves before they can be shot at again. And now we're going to give the the family of the shooter millions of dollars? I'm done with it. Stop it. Stop it. BJ's in uh, North Olmstead. BJ, go ahead, sir. I'm sorry that all this is going on in our society, but this is just the beginning. This summer is going to be very hot. These young African-American boys are killing each other by the hundreds all over the country in democratic cities. And if there's not an awakening to what's happening with these young boys, and when they get tired of shooting at each other, they're going to be coming into our neighborhoods. And when I say our neighborhoods, our mixed neighborhoods, they're already starting to do it in Lakewood and going into Westlake. They're robbing from cars and stealing from people. The tolerance of this by the Democrats and by the socialists is sad to see. But this is going to be a very hot summer. There's going to be more of these shootings taking place, and then they're going after the weapons. People are going to weaponize themselves. You're, you're not going to have enough police officers to protect the civilians where these crimes are being committed. It's sad to see, but it is the awakening that I've been predicting that is coming this summer. And may God be with America. Thank you for your time, and thank you for listening. Thank you, BJ. I appreciate that. It's uh, it, it's sad that anybody is going through this in any community. I don't care what the color of the people are, but the, the statistics don't lie. It is. It is the black community that is in large part. I did the whole story yesterday on Chicago. And the overwhelming, I mean, if you look at the videos of the Chicago uh, nights of rage and riots and so forth on Friday and Saturday, it is almost exclusively exclusively African-American. If you look at the statistics of the shootings in Chicago every single weekend, almost exclusively African-American shooters and African-American victims. Um, it's true. It's, it's, it's a sad reality. Um, and in this particular case, I don't think race matters. I don't care if you're green, you turn and shoot at a cop while you're making them chase you. You are going to be uh, thought of as a grave threat. And then when you reach for your waistband, uh, the cops are going to think, here he goes again. He's about to shoot us again, and you're going to get shot. I don't care if you're green. It does not matter. But the sad reality is, is the criminal activity is being excused. What did the mayor-elect of Chicago say? The mayor of elective Chicago said, yeah, we didn't like all of that violence either, but I think it's a, it's counterproductive to demonize youth. You know, they're, they're poor. And this is a, and what did, oh my goodness. I almost forgot about this one yesterday. Let me see if I can find this one, uh, in short order. Probably not, but in short order, I'll see if I can find the story of the individual. And I don't know if it was a Chicago, uh, councilman or what do they call them there in Chicago? Not councilman. Um, uh, I can't remember the word right now, but uh, but one of them basically defended the 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 uh, the violence and the burning of cars and the smashing of windows and the looting and everything else that was going on in Chicago, which by the way was not following something like the Jalen Walker decision. There, this is just what they decided to do. It was all organized on social media, but he he went on there and uh, and basically said, you know, I know I'm going to get killed for this, you know, you know, metaphorically speaking for this, um, but. Um, 
this is kind of more of a protest. It's a political statement by these youngsters. They're protesting against their poverty and against their, you know, the lot they have in life and all of these kind of things. I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have it in front of me now. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're finding reasons to excuse aberrant, violent, dangerous behavior. And saying, well, it's their condition in life. It's, it's what's li- what life has done to them. It's, you know, it's not their faults. Until we start holding people accountable for their actions again, this is going to increase. And you know what else is going to increase? Police shootings. And yes, the majority of them are at white people, but the ones that hit the news, the ones that hit the, uh, uh, the, the TV screens and the computer screens and your phone screens every single time are the ones in which it's an African-American suspect like Jalen Walker. Those are the only ones that are going to lead to that. But if we don't, like I said, if we don't start doing something about crime that isn't, let's feel sorry for them and build them uh, playhouses, um, then the numbers are going to climb, and you're going to start to see more and more of this every single day. Andy is in Middleburg Heights next. Andy, go right ahead. You know, it, it's, a, it's a sad state of affairs when we start paying criminals. That's what, this is what this is about. This is paying criminals for criminal acts. Then the the thing that they should be playing on the air 24-7 is the sheriff out of Florida. Remember last week when that shooting happened down there? He got on there and he said there are no consequences for their actions, period. And he's the sheriff. He was in tears. He's got two sons. And he said, I'm, and he was so sad about it, you know, that they should be playing that. And my, my other, my other part is, you know, I'm 82, you know me already. I'm 82 years old and I'm on a walker. But you know what, Bob, I still carry because I'm not going to have one of these, uh, I got to watch my language, watch one of these jerks. And I, I see this stuff going on here and at Southland. I see the Parmatown. I see the threats when these people, you see them walking through the parking lot, they're threatening these uh, African-Americans, put it that way. They're threatening, just do something to me. Go ahead. You know, and I don't, I'm not Wyatt Earp or Gunsmoke or nothing. But I got to tell you, I, 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 when I go to the range, I, because I know I'm going to get knocked down. If I leave go of my walker, I'll fall down on the ground. But you know what? I practice laying on the ground because I'll be damned if I'm going to die from one of these jerks. I'm going to defend myself to the end, and I think anybody out there, and I've got a concealed carry permit. i got a million dollars' worth of insurance. I'm on Social Security, and I, I'm living on the end. But I've got the insurance and everything to carry. I... And I think anybody that's got a, a permit should carry because this is going to come to your neighborhood, Bob, and mine. Well, there's no you know, doubt. This, there's, there's no doubt. This is, as a previous caller said, thank you for the call. Previous caller said this is um, spreading from the inner city where it's been commonplace <clears throat> into the suburbs. And even from suburbs out into rural areas, there's no question about that. I'll say two things in response to what Andy just said. Number one, jerks uh, in these types of things come in all sizes, shapes, and colors. So I don't want to limit it to one. Now, the number of these things that are on video do indeed have a predominant and in a very, very extraordinarily high uh, proportion of African Americans committing these types of things. It was in L.A. yesterday or over the weekend. It was in Chicago, as I just uh, pointed out to you. These things are indeed. And there's a reason why, of course, if a massive crowd of of uh, Caucasians 
circled up on and attacked a person of color, well, then you know, America dies. I mean, seriously, it's 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 over because that is unbelievable racism and and so it's Jim Crow and so on and so forth. But what you do see, if you are online at all, is repeatedly multiple times every single week you will see massive groups of young african-american kids attacking an individual white person and it does not hit the news it only hits the social media pages it will not be even on fox news it will not be on on uh, any of your local news channels because that of course that's that's what's not allowed to be said it's not allowed to be said that these things happen if it was in the reverse, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a great example. I'm going to take this all the way to news. So bear with me for a second. I'm going to play you a three-minute story that everybody should hear. And you tell me if what I'm saying right now is inaccurate. Ever heard of a kid named Seth Smith? The answer to that question is, you probably haven't. And there's a very good reason why you've never heard of Seth Smith and the injustice of his story. Nothing better epitomizes where our country is at the moment when it comes to race, when it comes to the criminal justice system, and when it comes to the culture of the media. Seth Smith was a 19-year-old student at the University of California, Berkeley. He was double majoring in economics and history and was on track to graduate a year early. His dream was to attend grad school at the London School of Economics. On June 15, 2020, Seth Smith was going for a walk outside his house in Berkeley. While on his walk, he was shot in the back of the head and killed, execution style, in cold blood. His body was found a half hour later, sprawled out at a bus stop, with his earbuds still in his ears. The person who killed him was a 60-year-old man named Tony Walker. While being interrogated by the police for his murder, Walker said, quote, A white kid gets killed and the whole damn world stops. I'm he sorry. Admitted. Let's uh, dump that. I didn't realize we had the vo- the vulgarities in this. John, are we good? Yes. Okay. Uh, we'll have to play that again at another time after it's been cleaned up. I did not realize they used the actual quotes there without the beeps. There is a beeped version of it. We had the wrong version. I will tell you the rest of the story, though. Seth Smith, the white college student that was described in the beginning, was murdered by a 60-year-old black man who shot him in the back of the head and told police it's because he was white. This all happened shortly after the George Floyd incident in 2020. Because of the George Floyd incident in 2020, no one in America even heard the story of Seth Smith. Seth Smith, an honor student who was on his way to grad school, was walking along harming no one, was shot in the back of the head simply for being white, according to the black 60-year-old man who shot him. Because he was white, that's it. George Floyd, a career criminal who broke into the home of a pregnant woman and put a gun to her, 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 her belly and threatened to kill her and her baby if she didn't give up uh, where the money was. George Floyd, a career criminal who was high on fentanyl and methamphetamine at the time that he stopped breathing, which was blamed on the knee to the neck and was probably a little bit of everything. George Floyd has statues built for him. You realize that, right? There are statues built to George Floyd. Seth Smith, a white victim of that crime that was just described there. Seth Smith, you never heard the name. I know this because I didn't. I had never heard the name until I saw this story reported. 
and the story is not on the news, and it's not in the uh, newspapers. This story is only online, the reality of Seth Smith. And yes, I looked up the facts. It is absolutely 100% correct. Apologies for not having the bleeped version available. We only had the uh, profane version available, so we'll have to cut that out, and we'll bring the rest of it to you another time. Right now, it's 1059, so we will uh, take this time out, get our newscast, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about Bud Light and the bigger picture of what Bud Light means when we talk with uh, Josh Hammer from Newsweek. That's coming up on the 1420 The Answer. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Third and final hour of this morning's broadcast underway now. It's 10 minutes past 11 o'clock on a Tuesday, 18th morning of the fourth month, year of our Lord, 2023. Great calls this morning, great conversations this morning already with Mary Harrington. you got to check her book out. Uh, and uh, if you're missing Peter Carson now, don't, you didn't miss it. Really, he wasn't here. Pete is, uh, uh, had a schedule clash today. He will join us tomorrow morning, same time, 10-10 tomorrow morning. So we will look forward to that. I want to start this third hour with a 34-second commercial. Uh, It's got video to it, but you're listening on the radio, and I think it'll serve just as well there. Team DeSantis presents... Real man of women's sports. Today, we recognize the men who've hacked the system. Hacked the system. Once mediocre in the men's division, now cream of the crop in the women's. From mediocre to champion. You couldn't cut it with the boys, so you pushed women off the podium. Real man, still first place. Because without you, sports would be fair. Without you women's sports would be for well women just one of many many parodies of bud light and their real men of genius we've done it yeah we heard you already uh one of many parodies uh this one put out by team desantis joining us now to react to that and talk about well the only way out being the way through josh hammer joins us once again josh is the opinion editor and opinion editor at newsweek host of the josh josh hammer show he's a syndicated columnist as well josh good to have you back on here on am 1420 the answer how are you i am doing great sir it's always a pleasure thanks for having me what'd you think of uh desantis's little run there Look, I think that Governor DeSantis is pretty clearly gearing up for a presidential run, and you know his his comments on Bud Light uh, with with Benny Johnson. Saw the video go around yesterday. I think he's hitting all the right notes, so, yeah, and I can't help but notice the contrast. I would be remiss if I did not point out between his comments on Bud Light and Donald Trump Jr.'s comments on Bud Light, which are 
pretty diametrically opposed, if I don't say so myself. Yeah, you know, you read my mind. I was going to ask you about that because uh, a lot of people are making that comparison. As a matter of fact, uh, former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis is floating that around and saying, whose message do you like better on the Bud Light question? That of Ron DeSantis, and it showed Ron DeSantis talking about how uh, he opposes Bud Light, he's a yingling man, and so forth. And uh, and then Donald Trump Jr., who says, you know what, you know, I think we made our point here. Uh, Bud Light or Anheuser-Busch has been a stronger Republican donor than Democrat donor, so let's leave them alone now. I was pretty taken aback by that do you think he is speaking on behalf of his father as well or is that just don being done hard to say i mean i guess i didn't really realize until the past week that in bush and i guess its parent company inbev which is a belgian company but i i guess they fear a, a large percentage perhaps even a majority depending on the given cycle of their donation money to the, to the GOP and to the RNC, NRCC, and various other Republican-leaning causes. I, I, I did not know that, to be honest with you. So uh, maybe it's just a pure kind of financial commentary from Don Jr. But look, I mean, if we want to take a slightly more cynical viewpoint here, Don Jr., for a number of years now, and especially recently, has not always had kind of the most hardline stance when it comes to questions about transgenderism, the transgender agenda, things of that nature. I mean, I think it was just last week, if I recall, or at least uh, within the past week and a half, two weeks, where he went on some other podcast, and he said, he, he literally said, I think, I, I, he said, quote, I'm somewhat liberal on the issue, somewhat liberal on the issue of transgenderism. He was talking there about how he would oppose, quote-unquote, gender-affirming care for people three years old or younger, which obviously raises the question, what do you think about so-called gender-affirming care for four, five, six, seven-year-olds, and so forth. So, I am not so sure that this was a pure kind of financially motivated statement. Not that that's a whole lot better, but I, I, I don't think that he is the most kind of hard right guy when it comes to this particular issue. We're talking to Josh Hammer, an opinion editor at Newsweek, uh, as well as a syndicated columnist. Um, briefly on the Bud Light story, then, uh, your Don, uh, Don, Don Jr. comments notwithstanding, uh, according to the multiple reports that I saw at the end of last week, it was somewhere between $5 billion and $7 billion of lost valuation. Now, I'm not an economist, so I can't put a, a lot of that into terms. Does that mean sales? Does that just mean the value of their stock? Um, but but it's a very, very heavy price, so much so that the CEO had to come out and issue some kind of a we're-not-trying-to-divide-people statement, which fell flat as well. Um, do you think that what has happened to Bud Light here will start to limit some of the partnership agreements that are with this very, very divisive trans um, you know, agenda? I mean, hard to see how it does, then. I mean, four and a half. $5 billion in market cap. I mean, that's a lot of money. That, that, that is a lot of money for a company to hemorrhage in a fairly short period of time. I mean, obviously, Anheuser Bush is a big company, but no one wants to be kind of losing that sort of money. And, you know, the anecdotal evidence piling up is pretty staggering. I, I mean, I saw John Rich, the country music star in Nashville. Uh, he was on Fox News just last week talking about how his popular country bar in downtown Nashville, the Redneck Riviera, they were going to stop selling Bud Light, which John Rich had previously said was their number one best-selling beer, because he said no one wants to buy it anymore. And, you know, on a personal level, Bob, I, I've had so many friends who, you know, unlike me and you, don't kind of work in this space 24-7, who are a little less plugged in. I've, I've had some more apolitical friends that need to say who have texted me just apoplectic about this. I mean, one of my buddies from childhood we've known each other since we were four years old he texted me and he was like josh i've been a lifelong bud light guy since i was in college i'm done i'm done 
So I, I, I have to think that if, if conservatives, traditionalists, religious Americans, and so forth keep this up, and I say if deliberately because it very much is an if, but if we do so, then, yeah, I, I, I absolutely have to think that some, uh, you, you know, I mean, let's take us sports, for example. You know, I'm not sure if Bud Light advertises for, like, NASCAR or the PGA Tour, which are some of the sports that traditionally have a more kind of politically right-of-center viewership and audience. But if they do, I mean, hypothetically, it's, not, it's very easy to see maybe a NASCAR or a PGA Tour stopping those endorsements, things like that. You know, the bigger picture here, uh, Josh, that I'm, I'm looking at when I see what's happening with Bud Light is we don't typically do the boycott thing. When I say we, I'm talking about people who are on the right side of the political spectrum. That's a leftist thing. Cancel culture is a leftist thing. We don't usually cancel things that we disagree with. But I, I, I haven't heard this being an organized cancel. This isn't something where... There's a right-wing organization that is pushing and driving this. It's just a whole bunch of individual Americans who were so disgusted to see the face of Dylan Mulvaney on the side of one of their beer cans that they started dumping it out on their own. Because um, it's, it's just not what we do. Generally speaking, there's collateral damage whenever boycotts lead to massive uh, you know, hits against companies and people lose their jobs and so on and so forth. Does this signal to you... Uh, you know, a change in that, that this is something that maybe the right is going to do to start playing by the Democrat playbook? I mean, you know, it's interesting. So my, my last column, which is partially about Bud Light, the column that I wrote last Friday, I, I pointed this out. I, I noted that conservatives have had a somewhat uneasy relationship with the idea of boycotting. I mean, I, I think back to the Chick-fil-A boycotts, which were headed the, the opposite direction. Those were left-wing boycotts. This is kind of the heat of the same-sex marriage debate around 2012, 2013, 2014 or so. I remember that all too well. I remember when the left was saying, don't eat a Chick-fil-A, boycott them because of their stance on Christianity and the definition of marriage and things of that nature. And all too many kind of right-of-center commentators were like, oh, that's not the kind of thing that we would ever do. But look, I mean, things have changed. The playing field has demonstrably changed over the past six, seven years or so, as we have seen the rise of woke capital, the rise of these corporations, corporate America, that seeks to not merely maximize shareholder value, which is the traditional role of the corporation, but rather to implement and ultimately impose from the top down a sweeping civilizational, cultural, and social agenda. That, that increasingly is the actual goal of many people in the C-suite of the Fortune 500. This vice president of marketing for Bud Light, this woman, Alyssa Heinerscheid, is a, a typical example of that. She, of course, had that video go viral talking about how she had to change Bud Light's quote-unquote fratty consumer base. And when we have a situation like this, where corporate America has fundamentally reimagined itself as a vessel, a tool for sweeping political and social change, and specifically a left-wing one, then I absolutely think that it is necessary and proper for we on the right to respond in kind. And more generally, Bob, there's really nothing inherently wrong or icky even with the idea of an economic boycott. I mean, that's just the market. It's literally just applying demand curves. It's going back to Econ 101. I mean, we, the consumer, have the ability, especially if we act cohesively and in union, to shift those supply and demand curves via our consumer preferences. So there's, it, 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 the means are entirely legitimate. I mean, the means are just the market at work. So uh, I am emphatically pro-boycott um, in this particular context. Um, I, I would be boycotting Nike, Balenciaga, all these other companies that have various 
um, you, you know, have capitulated to the woke agenda in various ways. I, I just don't see anything necessarily wrong with it, to be honest. Yeah, and you know, I I, I respect that. Um, I, I boycott Nike myself as well. I have not been to a major league baseball or football or an NFL or, or an NBA game since they all went woke as well in the last three or four years. So I'm, I'm but but the difference being that that's me. Uh, I'm not leading the charge. I'm not on my radio program telling everybody don't buy X, Y, or Z. The way the left was saying don't buy Chick Fil A. They were. What I see happening with Bud Light is completely organic. Talking about, I mean, you talk about grassroots. It's just everybody saying, man, I'm not doing this anymore. And they're videotaping themselves dumping their beer, or in Kid Rock's case, assassinating their beer, or whatever it is. And they're just saying, this is me, and I'm doing my thing. But it's not an organized boycott. Uh, and, and I think you answered the question very, very well. And I want to go to your call in which you referenced Chick-fil-A. You also referenced you know, the uh, decision by some judges to not take any more Stanford law clerks, Stanford law students, to hire them as clerks because of what happened uh, with Judge Kyle Duncan. You also talk about the drama in Tennessee in which uh, they booted the uh, legislators there out who spurred on and helped uh, uh, essentially run the, uh, the anti-gun and pro-trans boycott in Nashville. So you, you do talk about boycotts on, on Moss here. There's a lot of different types of scenarios. So can you explain the, the headline, the only way out is through? What does that mean, Josh Hammer? Sure. So I, I, I guess the way that I would try to explain this is, you know, I think a certain type of conservative, and, you know, this has been kind of my instinct at various times over the years as well, you know, conservatives are not necessarily always by their nature political animals. And the reason for that is very simple. The reason for that is that conservatives usually are the ones with a bigger family. They're having more children. They have a higher rate of marriage. And most importantly, they also have their religion. They have their faith. They have their church, their synagogue, their community, things like that. So conservatives oftentimes, because they are not necessarily political animals by their core, kind of have a reflexive tendency, I think, to kind of just form their communities of like-minded individuals, move to a red state, and, you know, and be done with this kind of nasty business of politics. It's kind of focus on yourself, focus on bringing home the bacon to the table, feeding the family, things of that nature. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I live in a red state. I'm very happy that I do. The problem, the problem is that the modern left fundamentally rejects the entire premise of live and let live. They are coming for you. They are coming for us. They are coming for me. They are coming for you. They have a fundamentally hegemonic impulse. My friend Eric Erickson, the radio host, was very prescient uh, about a decade ago, also during the same-sex marriage fights, where he coined this famous line that has stuck with me very well to this day. He said, quote, you will be made to care. And, of course, that became the whole bake the damn cake bigot sort of thing with Jack Phillips, the masterpiece cake shop. The point is that just retreating to our silos and our enclaves or redoubts of sanity may have been a sufficient thing to do years ago, but it's no longer sufficient. We're coming at us every which way we got, from academia to the corporate corporate boardroom, the elementary school classroom with the racialist indoctrination, you name it. They're coming with us across the entirety of society. So we really have no choice but to fight across the entire sphere of society. And I do think that boycotts are but one means of doing that. I'm happy you mentioned the other example pertaining to Stanford Law School. So this is actually, I, I think it's a great example, so I'll just briefly unpack it then. So what happened initially was actually not Stanford, but at Yale Law School. So at Yale Law School last April, Kristen Wagner, who's a top lawyer at the 
Alliance Defending Freedom, a wonderful organization. Mm-hmm. Her event was, sh- was shouted down at Yale Law School. And in response to that, several months later, my former boss, Judge Jim Ho of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, along with 11th Circuit Judge Lisa Branch, said that they were no longer going to hire law clerks from Yale Law School. And in the aftermath of the horrible shouting down of Judge Kyle Duncan at Stanford Law School last month, Judges Ho and Branch then extended their boycott at Stanford Law School. Now, this has been very controversial among federal judges, most of whom are very smart, well-credentialed, educated lawyers, and who, like many conservatives, don't necessarily have kind of the instinct to fight fire with fire and try to boycott and therefore use their market pressure to shape and ultimately help dictate action. You know, Josh, I I could not agree with all of that more. I really couldn't, except I... I'm sorry, you still there, Josh? Yes, yes. Oh, you know what? I, I, you know, you're either your phone cut out or you stopped talking. I heard the silence, so I picked it up there. If I interrupted you, it's because your phone cut out and I didn't know it. So I'm sorry. Did you want to finish a point? Oh, no problem at all. No, no. So I just want to say, but, if, but, but if you accept the premise that the only way out is through, then I think it is entirely proper for federal Article Three judges to use their heft, their sway in the market for hiring law clerks to try to have what my friend Ilya Shapiro referred to as a, quote, exogenous shock to the system. Put another way, to put pressure on the law schools from the outside to reprimand students, to, to shout down speakers and engage in all this other woke nonsense. But you have to get your hands dirty, is the point you here. What, yeah, no, it. no, you do. I just In the minute I have left here, I just want to hit the, the... I don't disagree with anything you just said, except for the fact that I do feel for the collateral people who are collateral damage. In that Stanford story, when I covered that a, a few weeks ago, uh, I, I read the comments from some of the students who were not part of the shout-down of the judge and who were not part of the shame of the walk of shame. Remember, they created that big tunnel uh, for the dean that they were livid with for daring to apologize on behalf of them and of Stanford. And the students who were not as a part of the tunnel, if you will, and not holding signs or doing something to express their disgust with the, with the uh, dean, not the dean, it may have been the president of the university, but whoever it was who made the apology on behalf of Stanford, those students said we were shunned as well. And so it takes courage to not be a part of that mob and to just be there to show the respect to the judge, to, to, to do all the right things, and then for them to be denied clerkships because of their membership of that school, that law school, that's the one problem I have with organized boycotts. You do have people who don't deserve to be punished who get caught up in it. Right. So in, the, in this specific example, um, I know Judges Ho and Branch do not apply their boycott to current students. So the current students, or even probably people who have already signed their letter that they're going to matriculate there, it does not apply to them. It only applies prospectively to future applicants to basically know what they are signing up for. But, but fair enough. I mean, you know, there obviously are going to be some instances of collateral damage in basically every tool out there. I mean, I mean, nothing is kind of truly a scalpel. I mean, all these tools are going to be somewhat blunt to an extent. Um, unfortunately, I think kind of resorting to semi-blunt instruments is probably the least bad option that we have at this point. Very well said. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, it's a great piece. People should read this. I saw it on Real Clear Politics. You can read it. Uh, I think it's linked to, uh, and I guess the best thing to do is just follow Josh Hammer, and you'll find all of his great work there. So follow Josh Hammer on Twitter, uh, and, uh, and uh, of course, follow him on Newsweek as well. He's at Josh underscore Hammer on Twitter. Josh underscore Hammer. Opinion editor at Newsweek, syndicated columnist, and more. Josh, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Bob, you as well. Thanks as always. Thank you. 
All right, we'll take a time out here now at 1128 and come right back after the break. Always Right Radio. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by KeepingMedicareSimple.com and The Floor King. Okay, 11.39, final segment. It's a bit of a short one. we got about five minutes for you here. I want to hit two quick things, then I'll take a couple of quick phone calls. Number one, according to multiple media reports, there is a Justice for Jalen Walker march set for 1 o'clock today after the grand jury declined to uh, charge the eight Akron officers involved in Jalen Walker's death. Number two, apparently last night wasn't as peaceful as I had originally thought. This report says that uh, police uh, arrested six people and issued numerous citations involving large caravans of vehicles in the area, blocking traffic and creating disturbances and other safety hazards. So that's not surprising. And then this one. Remember how I described earlier on the the, uh, facts of the Jalen Walker case? and pointed out how, as he was being chased on foot, rather than stopping and throwing his hands into the air or getting on the ground with his hands behind his head or whatever the case might be, he decided to turn and face them while reaching for his waistband of his pants. And that I said it was almost certainly suicide by cop. I hadn't read this report yet, but I have it in front of me now. According to the Ohio Attorney General's office, Based on evidence gathered and family member interviews, Jalen Walker was so distraught by the death of his girlfriend and his fiance in a car crash on May. Remember, this happened June 26th of last year. The death was one month earlier on May 28th. He was having such a hard time that his Google account shows the searches on May 30th of what happens when you drink bleach and another Google search Quote, quickest ways to die. This young man was suicidal. This young man, it appears by almost all of the evidence, committed suicide by cop. And yet, they want the cops to pay the price for doing it. And now that the indictment is not coming down, they want the city of Akron taxpayers to pay the price with a big fat settlement, um, which is almost inevitably the result of a civil suit. He shot himself by shooting at police and then pretending to be about to shoot at police again. He shot himself. That was suicide. The cops were the instruments he used. Steve in Collinwood. Hi, Steve. Go ahead, sir. Steve, are you there? Okay, I'm not hearing Steve. Am I... Are the phones working or no? Okay, let me let me try another line. Art in Independence, are you there, Art? Hey, hey, Bob, how are you doing? Okay, now we got it. Yeah, I'm good, Art. Go ahead, sir. What's on your mind? Just wondering if any of your listeners happened to be watching Newsmax uh, TV last night. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was in the seven o'clock hour. The Rob Schmidt show. They showed a woman in a what they refer to as an upper class neighborhood in Chicago near downtown, a place called The Loop. I've never been to Chicago. I'm not mm-hmm. familiar. Mm-hmm. A white woman, completely surrounded. You couldn't even see how many there were. Yeah, completely surrounded by these black... You did. Yeah, I did. I mean, and they just swarmed her. And uh, what the outcome was, they even said on the show, well, 
uh, that this occurred two days ago. So far, we haven't received any information on her condition. But uh, the look, the t- look of terror in this woman's eyes was was stark. If I had your email address, my friend, I could send you fifty videos identical to that. They are all over the place. It has become a thing. They call it in in many places polar bear hunting. It's when large groups of African-American youths find isolated white people and beat them to nearly death. Um, It's happening all over the place. I could send you dozens of videos. I'm not kidding because they're everywhere on social media uh, because that's why they do it. They do it to flex on social media, uh, you know their their hatred for for whites and uh, you know their own um, you know their own their own superiority or whatever it is that you want to call it. Go ahead, Art. Also, you remember a few years ago it was all the rage. I haven't heard too much about it recently. There was a thing I think they called it the knockout game. That's or another just one. Some average run it, white person, man, woman, old, young, whatever, walking down the street, and a black person. Usually, a, a man. It's, a, or a it's, male. it's usually a gang thing, and you're right. They do that, um, and they'll walk up from behind them and then hit them directly in the temple. Because if you get hit on the square in the temple, you're going down. You are knocked out. Thank you for the call, my friend. It is a terrible, terrible thing to think about happening. It's a terrible thing to have to acknowledge because it's so incredibly, you know, divisive and it's so racially, um, you know, uh, explosive. But it is a real thing. It is happening. But specific to the Jalen Walker thing, as I said, this is a young man who is distraught over the death of his fiancée who got himself killed by cop. And now the city of Akron is going to pay for it. And who knows how many others, including police officers. We'll follow up on this story more tomorrow. Everyone be well, be safe, stay free. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.